Hello and welcome in. Thanks for joining us for another edition of the Frary and Smith podcast. The 2023 season for the Sun Belt can best be described as historic, featuring 12 teams playing postseason football. South Alabama won their first bowl game in program history, while Marshall played in a bowl game for the seventh season in a row. Today, we're putting their 2023 seasons in review as we continue our annual in-review series. But before we do, we want to tell you about Wednesday's episode. Caden and I were joined by the voices of the Chanticleers and Red Wolves, Joe Cashin and Matt Stoltz, to review the 2023 seasons for Coastal Carolina and Arkansas State. If you missed it, go back and give it a listen. Today, it's episode 175 of the show, and it's time to put the South Alabama Jaguars and Marshall Thundering Herd in review. Voice of the Jags, JT Crabtree, will join us first, followed by a conversation with voice of the Thundering Herd, Steve Cotton, later in this episode. Caden, let's talk South Alabama first. They came into this year with sky-high expectations. They had an early season win over eventual Big 12 runner-up Oklahoma State, but largely underachieved this year. They did, however, win this program's first bowl game. Partner, what are you going to remember when you think back about South Alabama's year? Well, this will apply to both the teams we're talking about on this episode, Noah. I'll remember being wrong about both these teams. These are both teams I projected being in the conference championship heading to the season, and they both definitely disappointed not only my expectations, but I think the expectations everybody had of them heading into the year, specifically with South Alabama. I think it's just the most disappointing of really all of the teams in the conference, just given how much firepower they had on both sides of the ball. I think when you look at all the teams across the conference heading into the season. I was really optimistic. If I had to pick a team to probably play on, it'd be this team, just given how many weapons and skilled players they had and guys in the trenches. But we talk about it on this episode. This is a team that wasn't able to manage and kind of find that consistency throughout the season, consistency throughout the season, and it definitely hurt them. So I think that's definitely what's going to stand out outside of me just being very wrong about the South Alabama team heading into the year. Okay, and it takes a a big man to admit when he was wrong. Kudos to you for uh, taking that step right there. Well, let's not make South Alabama's JT Crabtree wait any longer. It's time to review the Jaguars 2023 season. Well, we are excited to be joined by the voice of the South Alabama Jaguars, JT Crabtree, on the Ferry and Smith podcast. JT, you're coming to us live from Monroe. Thanks for making some time to come on. Yeah, man. Glad to be on here and talk with you guys. Coming to you from the uh, lovely, not a sponsor, Courtyard Marriott's in Monroe, Louisiana. <laughs> Getting ready for uh, some men's basketball over the weekend. But uh, JT, let's talk some football. And it's no secret that this South Alabama team had high expectations entering 2023. They had a veteran roster. There was the two-lane loss to start the year, but then you also have the big win over Oklahoma State. The rest of the year, though, it kind of felt like it was up and down. But ended ultimately with the program's first bowl win. What were your biggest takeaways from 2023? Yeah, you know, kind of a a year of a couple of firsts and some big milestones. Like you said, kind of underperformed a bit. Um, You know, we had a high expectations. Like you said, so many returners, 18, 19 starters returning for us. And then, of course, you keep your entire coaching staff back as well. Coming off a 10-win season, and you had a bad taste in your mouth, too, from 22, ending it the way you did in the New Orleans Bowl. And so... You come into the year feeling pretty good with a, a matchup with a two-lane team that in 22 is the best group of five team in, in the country, and that's where we wanted to be. So it was a great opportunity for us to not only go back to the city where we ended the year with such struggles in New Orleans, but also to kind of literally take the mantle of what we want from the team that has it. So it was a great opportunity and just fell short. Um, then you, you turn around and play Southeastern. You look a little sluggish, and 
you go to Oklahoma State and, you know, it's a bye game. You're going up there and just hoping you're competitive and lo and behold, did a lot more than that. (laughs) So you're feeling like, you know, that was that game where it's like, okay, there it is. There's that version of South Alabama we've been waiting to, to show up. And then you lay an egg the next week in Central Michigan, especially on homecoming. We had several people in town in Mobile that had never been to a Jags game before. And I think we had around 19,000 in attendance for that Central Michigan game. And that's great for uh, people in Mobile don't care about Central Michigan football. They wanted to come see the Jags. And for several people, it's the first time. And so kind of a, a missed opportunity there to grab hold of some new fans. Uh, you, you played JMU, obviously you know, a great season they had, and we didn't come out on the right end of that one on the road. And so then you turn around, and you have the two-game stretch at ULM and against Southern Miss where you outscore an opponent uh, combined 110 to 10. Uh, just to, Again, we were feeling good. It was there's that version of South Alabama that we think we can be. And then, again, just kind of yo-yoed the rest of the way. But like you said, capped it off with our first ever bowl win, which was great. Really cool opportunity to do it in our home stadium, in our city, in Mobile. And uh, to do it in, in such dramatic fashion of just really, we dominated that football game in spite of being shorthanded. You know, no Carter Bradley, no Colin Lacey. You know, we're a little injured in that game too. No, no LaDamian Webb. And so to, to play the way we did at the end of the season, again, was just kind of like, there it is. There's that version of South Alabama that we wanted consistently on a day-to-day basis. Just couldn't find it. And so um, a good year overall, obviously capping off our first ever bowl win. We'll still return quite a bit next year, but um, obviously with the new head man at, uh, at head coach, which was kind of a whirlwind for a couple of days. But uh, all in all, a successful season, maybe a little disappointing, but overall a success, I would say. Well, JT, you can ask Noah and any of our listeners. My heart was with you all this year. I picked this team to come out of the West early, a year early in 2022. I saw it coming and doubled down on it in 23, and we obviously didn't get what we wanted or expected. But from my perspective, it seemed like injuries and just overall consistency were the biggest things that held this team back. This year, there were obviously some key players that were banged up, and the offense and defense just seemed inconsistent from week to week. In your opinion, what went wrong with the South Alabama team when things weren't looking so good? Yeah, you you wonder where, like, who was the guy to kind of carry the flag and rally the troops at times? Um, you know, Carter Bradley being your field general at quarterback, the, the role is kind of expected. And he did a good job of that, but then, you know, he gets banged up. And so, okay, who offensively is carrying that torch? You might think at times it's Devin Voison, but he got hurt week two. And so he's not available either. So there was some times where it's, you know, when things aren't going the way you want, Who's the guy that kind of steers the ship back in the right direction? And there were some question marks about who that guy was sometimes. You know, defensively, you had guys like Quentin Wilfon and Trey Kaiser and Jaden Voison and others that were were huge for us. They were they were great all season long. Quentin finished with a, a great five game stretch to end the year. But again, there were times where you look at the Marshall game, our last home game of the year, and you shut them out twenty eight nothing, and then the next week you turn around, you give up fifty two points and. So again, things were going great and everything's sunshine and rainbows, but then when it's going wrong and it it went wrong in different facets in that Texas state game, we got exposed defensively. We really got exposed, exposed in some special team stuff that no one had done before who was kind of picking up the flag and rallying the troops. And so we had some inconsistency there, not only in performance, but also leadership at times. I, I don't think that's necessarily an indication of, of leadership at the top with Kane Womack or anything like that. I think it's just a matter of some of these guys were expected to be in roles that they'd never been before and just didn't really know how to carry it. So I think that's going to be a big emphasis next year is kind of 
individual leaders, you know, you always hear the cliche, coach-led teams are never good as player-led teams. And I think that's what we had a little bit of this year was, sure, coach was carrying the flag every game, but who else was carrying the flag was always a question mark. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because from the outside looking in, you look at quantity of returners, but I think the point you're making is that a lot of those guys had not been called upon to be leaders on this football team. I think that's fascinating. JT, now let's talk some offense. Statistically, this team maintained its high level of play, but when you really dig into the X's and O's, it played a lot of its best football against some weaker teams. You mentioned Southern Miss, ULM, Eastern Michigan, for example, but what did you like from this offense this year, and what were some of the areas that you just felt like they really struggled with? Well, what I liked was at times we were pretty good in tempo. When we ran tempo, we we did it pretty solidly, and that was obvious. Uh, honestly, that was a product of seeing tempo run against us so well by Western Kentucky in the New Orleans Bowl in '22. They shredded us, and so we said, "Hey, if it works against us, let's use it against other folks." And it was pretty successful. Now we were limited in that and offensively by Carter Bradley. You know, he's not he's not a mobile quarterback at all. He's very much a pocket passer. And so it kind of limited our options offensively when we did want to go tempo. It's either a handoff or just a straight pass. RPO didn't play a factor at all in our offense. And I, I think we'll see that a lot more in the future. Um defensively, I think we were really surprised at how poorly we defended the big plays defensively you know we always talk about limit limit the explosives and our defense typically does a pretty good job of doing that but we could not consistently do that this year we were hit over the top several plays two lane the, right out of the gates they really hit us over the top and then we had some issues containing mobile quarterbacks central michigan did that against us with just a power runner going right up the middle on some plays and so you know kane womack is a, a teacher and a, a really big proponent of the four-two-five defense, and that's what he's known for. It's obviously what his dad is known for, and we run that at South Alabama pretty efficiently. But the four-two-five was not working this past year, and you may have noticed midway through the season we kind of switched to more of a three-three-five with an edge rusher st- kind of standing up in the middle and roaming around. So that helped limit some of the explosives in the running game. But again, the the key word with this Jags team was just consistency this year you know offensively like you said you know we we handled our business against teams like we should have like Southern Miss and ULM and and even Marshall down at the end when their quarterback was banged up but then you look at Texas State and my gosh I mean we could not stop those guys at all offensively you know Central Michigan again like I was saying with the Oklahoma State win you turn around and Central Michigan we couldn't stop what was a, a pretty vanilla offense to be honest we we could not keep them from moving the football and key downs. And so I, I think there was a lot of good things you, you can take away from what we did last year with, you know, like I mentioned, the tempo offense. But it, oddly enough, we struggled sometimes in the running game. We had a guy, Latamian Webb, that was one of the best backs in the, in the Sunbelt Conference, and we couldn't consistently get his motor going sometimes. And you know, that, that some offensive inconsistency with some injuries and whatnot contributed to that. And Latamian was banged up most of the year as well. But just... Again, consistency, man. Consistency was really the big issue with why this team, I don't think, reached its potential. And you know, we've heard Kane Womack talk ad nauseum about you know the the best days are ahead for South Alabama and for Mobile. And I still think that's true, but I think that was also an indicator of we did not reach our best days. They could have been now. They could have been this season. We never reached that. 
Uh, that's some fantastic high-level perspective, JT. Really appreciate that for both sides of the ball. We mentioned Carter Bradley. He was a huge part of this offense ever since he transferred in from Toledo. Last year, he really elevated this offense and really this team kind of taking them to new heights. But this year, he digressed a little bit. We know we saw injuries play a role and that his supporting cast seemed like they weren't really helping him out the best they could at times. He's going to get an opportunity at the Senior Bowl to really show his stuff and hopefully get a chance to play at the next level. But overall, what would you say his legacy looks like in Mobile now that he's moved on from the program? Yeah, man, he he changed our program. You know, he really helped change our program, the identity of it, where it was a, a program that was so close to doing something really cool and just couldn't sustain it. And, and you know, and I wouldn't say we've necessarily achieved that, but we've gotten closer to achieving that on a regular basis. And again, I, I think back to that Oklahoma State game where we went out on the road to a power five and we dominated in all facets of that football game. And Carter was a huge part of it. You know, he was poised as a first year quarterback for us in 2022. He looked like he'd played for us for three years and he continued that this year. He was hurt most of the year. I know know, he only missed two games because of injury or missed time because of injury in two games. But really, he was hurt all year long with that knee injury. He, He banged it up in the preseason and played through it. And eventually just got to the point where he couldn't keep going. But uh, he he's going to be a legacy guy, man. You know, you're going to look back and it's funny because our two kind of legacy quarterbacks that we talk about will be Carter Bradley, but also another guy who wore number two, Ross Matheny, a couple of years ago, early years in our program. He was a transfer from Virginia. He was a guy who just wanted a shot, came down to us and played gritty, scrappy football. And he wasn't the most athletic guy. He wasn't the best thrower of the football, but he was a good leader. And guys rallied around him and made and made plays for him. And I think Carter was the same way. His arm talent was very, very good, uh, but the mobility was a big, uh, a big kind of knock on him, I guess you could say. But his leadership role was tremendous. He did a great job of knowing what to say, when to say it, and a lot of that comes from just the pedigree that he has from his dad being an NFL coach and coordinator for so long. He was around what you're supposed to be doing on a football field at the high level for so much of his life. And so he really had an opportunity at South Alabama to shine, and we can't thank him enough for what he did because he really did help propel the program forward, and we're not here talking about a first bowl game victory. In spite of him not even playing in that bowl game victory, it doesn't happen without Carter Bradley. He's, he's always going to be a huge part of our program. He's going to be one of those guys, you have pictures of him up on the wall in the field house talking about all-time greats, and he definitely deserves it. JT, another guy, you know, very similar to that, Kane Womack. Uh, he ultimately makes headlines over the last week or so, taking the defensive coordinator job at Alabama. He's joining former friend Kalen DeBoer's staff. That was a tough blow, obviously, for this fan base, but one of those jobs that, you know, no one's going to pass up. Uh, what's the reaction to his departure been like in Mobile, and how has his departure kind of resonated with this program? Yeah, so that was a wild 72 hours in Jag Nation. <laughs> we went from, uh, you know, there's some rumors swirling around that uh, Caleb DeBoer is going to go to Alabama. And, oh, you know, look at that. You know, good for him. And then we we knew internally that, that Kane and DeBoer were pretty good friends. In fact, Kane went down to New Orleans for the Sugar Bowl the week of the game and hung out with him. And so we knew they were good friends and the rumors started kicking around that Kane might be a candidate for DC. And, you know, people are texting me left and right. Oh, you, do you think it's going to happen? It's, it's just rumors guys. Like, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And then Pete Thamel tweets out that he is the candidate. And we're thinking, Oh, there might be something to this. And maybe six hours later, it's 
oh crap, we don't have a football coach. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> so it was a it was a wild couple of hours where you know he leaves, he addresses the team the next day, and then again now you're all of a sudden you're in mid late January without a football coach and that's not a great position to be in nowadays. You've got that 30 day transfer window that's opened up. Now uh, our president of our collective, I had seen, I saw him the the day after Kane announced he was leaving and I asked him like, how is your world right now? And it, he said, it's, it's chaos. You know, we've got supporters that have committed to these guys to stay and have signed contracts, but there's nothing stopping them now from leaving and, and taking some of that NIL money with them. So it was a, it was a wild couple of hours, but, you know, like you said, it's a great opportunity for him and Melissa and the boys. It's a great opportunity for him as a coach to progress his career. And what an opportunity, too, to go to the, the mecca of college football in this generation right now. You know, you get a chance to peek behind the curtain, see how the machine operates, and use that not only for your current situation while you're at that school, but also whenever you d- decide to, to move on to another opportunity, you can take what you've learned at what has been the dynasty of college football the last couple of years, apply it to yourself, and move forward to another program. And so for Kane, I hate he's gone. You know, obviously he was a great guy. He was a great coach. He absolutely did tremendous things for us. And as a Mobile native and a South grad myself, what I always appreciated about Kane was the way he intertwined Mobile and our football program together. I mean, to me, that resonated so, so loudly from a, a again, a guy that grew up in the 251, seeing my head football coach wanted my city to be a huge part of my alma mater's football program really meant a lot to me and a lot of people in Mobile. And so we're definitely going to miss that and miss that connection and just how well Kane was in the community and going out and just shaking hands. And he knew everybody and everybody knew Kane. And, you know, oftentimes in college athletics and in these high-profile jobs, there's kind of a, an aura around people of they're almost unapproachable at times. I never got that with Kane. He was just another guy who just wanted to coach football and have his family in a great community and have that community be part of his family. And I think Kane did such a good job of that in his three years. You look at where we were, say, six years ago, when we were starting a, a new, a different era of South Alabama football, it's night and day what he was able to do in three years. And so, again, I hate that he's gone, but I'm really excited for him and the opportunity that he's got to to further his career. I wish it wasn't that an in-state school, but I understand. I understand he's going to do great things there, and I, I'm really excited for him. No, there's no doubt. It sounds like the program's losing two high character guys with Coach Walmack and Carter Bradley, two guys we've thankfully had on this podcast. Another one we've had on this podcast is athletic director Dr. Erdman, who moved very quickly in hiring Major Alborite to replace Kane Walmack. He brings head coaching experience to the table from his experience at Houston, has plenty of offensive prowess, and it's pretty clear that he had some support from the players as well. How do you see him leading this program going forward, just based on your interactions and conversations with Major? Yeah, I'm fired up, man. You know, I've got a chance to know Major over the last three years as our OC, and I do a weekly uh, interview with him as part of our pregame coverage on the radio side, and he, I'm fired up, man. It, it was really cool seeing the players on social media really jump in his corner and, you know, post pictures of Major from his playing days at Texas, and seeing all that unfold was really exciting. And when he was announced by Dr. Erdman as our next head coach to the team, the team gave him a standing ovation because, 
they are absolutely fired up. This guy, while he's been an offensive guy for us, he's a head coach in the past. He's worked under some really good coaches under Mac Brown. He's worked with Steve Sarkeesian, of course, Nick Saban as well. So I'm really excited, man. You know, he's an offensive guy, and I'm excited to see what his offense is going to look like with us when it's really fully unleashed. You know, we've got Gio Lopez returning, who was our bowl MVP this past year as a true freshman. Uh, he's a mobile guy and a lefty quarterback who can really sling it. And so looking at the possibilities of some RPO, and I mentioned that tempo, probably going to ramp up that offensive intensity as well. I'm really fired up to see what our offense is going to do. And the defensively, you know, we still got some vacancies from uh, when Kane Womack made some staffing changes that Major Applewhite is still in the process of filling currently. And so I don't know exactly what the defense is going to look like, but if it's anything like the intensity that the offense plays with, I think it's going to be equally exciting. You know, if Corey Batoon is still our DC, great. If not, I'm sure Major's going to bring in a guy that's really going to hold things down and bring an aggressive style of football to Hancock Whitney Stadium every week. So I'm excited, man. You know, I think it's great that you have some continuity. You've got some guys that, again, were really in Major's corner and made the decision, I think, kind of easy for Dr. Erdman to make in retaining Major and also retaining that roster. And a big win for us, too, was, you know, Khalil Jacobs, who's a rising star as our linebacker. He actually went in the portal, had some Power 5 offers, including Alabama from, of course, where Kane Womack's at. He turned it down, and he announced the other day he's coming back to South Alabama, which that's a huge, huge win for us. Khalil's going to be a superstar for us, and he's bought in, man. He's all in on Major and his vision and what this program is going to do moving forward. So I'm fired up, man. You know, Major's going to do a great job. I think he got a raw deal of it at Houston after his two years where you know, he was following Tom Herman that had won 13 games, and he didn't win 13 games in the season, so they got rid of him. That's a raw deal. That's not fair. And so I think Major is really kind of chomping at the bit to get back out there, be a head coach and run a program the way he wants to. And just from talking with him from last week at his presser or even just casually over the last three years, the guy can coach, man. He wants to win. He wants to get after it. And I am pumped up to have Major as our head coach. JT, a moment ago, you you talked about uh, your connection to this school, this community, this team. Uh, this team ends the year with that bowl win, the first ever bowl win uh, for a South Alabama football team. How much did that mean to you as an alumnus as well as just to this football team in this evolution in this D1 era? Man, I, it meant so much to me, especially being, like I said, being from Mobile and having an opportunity to have the bowl game in Mobile and we win our first ever bowl game in our home stadium in Mobile. It was a really cool moment. It just as a as an alum, I take a lot of pride in being able to call these games on the radio and talk about my alma mater and really kind of help write the and tell the the history of our program as it's unfolding it is really a special thing for me. I, I really enjoy it. We've got a, a great. Uh, a great crew on the air with Chris May, who's a former football player for South, and he was one of the original Jags in the early years, and he's on the crew. You know, Pat Greenwood has covered us since we started. Tommy Hicks has been a part of us. Tommy Hicks wrote a book on the first season of football at South Alabama, so nobody knows Jaguar football more than Tommy Hicks, and so we've got a great crew, and so for all of us to be able to, to be a part of that moment at Hancock-Whitney Stadium and see it unfold, it's really exciting, and you know, my, my dad always tells me when he goes to jog around town, He'll see more and more South Alabama flags and yard signs and decorations out around town. And I think that's that's what it's about, man. You know, we're seeing this team and this program really kind of take hold of Mobile more and more. Of course, you know, Alabama and Auburn are going to be king in the state of Alabama forever. But, you know, we can take our nice big piece of the pie as well here and, here and then. And so I think we're starting to see that piece of the pie grow a little bit 
over these last couple of years and getting a bowl win and saying, hey, look, we did it. It doesn't matter where it was or who it was or what the score was. We've got a bowl win now. And I think that's a big part of continuing to move this program in the right direction. The community's starting to buy in more and more. And, you know, I'm always envious of of the, the smaller places like Jonesboro, Arkansas. When you go to Jonesboro, you see the town is just painted red, white, and black with everything Red Wolves. And I'm jealous of that because the stores have got Red Wolves painted in the windows and everything. And the community's all in. Will Mobile be that to that level ever? Maybe not, but we're starting to get closer to that. And that's what's really exciting is that the community is buying more into this football program. No, it definitely sounds like some exciting times on the verge, on the cusp of that immobile with this football program starting to gain some steam. We'll end with this, JT. South Alabama, as we've talked about, will have a new head coach in 2024. You lose some important pieces on both sides of the ball, but there's some strong offensive weapons too, like Lopez, McReynolds, Pritchard. They're guys that me and Noah are definitely excited about. The West seems a little bit more open now with some head coaching turnover as well across the league. What are you expecting to see from this 2024 version of the Jags heading into next season? Yeah, you know, I think that we can see potentially a version of South Alabama that was better than 23. You know, you mentioned you lose some guys, but you return some pretty big names. You know, Brandon McReynolds, we didn't have him for the majority of the year because of a broken collarbone. And when he was in there, he was pretty darn good. I'm I'm absolutely fired up that Gio Lopez is going to have a full season and a full playbook and all the options in his repertoire to run our offense as our quarterback and with the the running ability and the throwing ability and just another year in the playbook and another year in the system and just learning how to be a college football quarterback. I'm really fired up to see what Gio Lopez can do uh, next season. You mentioned Jamal Pritchett there as well. I mean, a guy that was a a walk-on kid to start camp and then all of a sudden he gets a scholarship and he was supposed to be just our slot receiver and because of injury, he becomes our primary target at the end of the year. So, I mean, he's, he's progressed incredibly quickly And so, again, having another year to see him grow. Uh, I'm curious to see what our offensive line is going to look like. We had some struggles there, but I know there's been some guys transfer in, transfer out, and whatnot. So I'm sure we'll see some some changes, good or bad, there for South Alabama. Defensively, still returning a ton of guys. I mentioned Khalil Jacobs went in the portal and then came out and is coming back. But the bigger name for South Alabama defensively is Jaden Voison did the same exact thing. Went in the portal the the day after our bowl victory. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to stay home. I'm going to come back and finish this out with my brother, Devin, who's returning from injury at wide receiver as well. And so that's huge for us as well. We lose a couple of other guys to portal and whatnot in graduation, but the the future is definitely bright for South Alabama football. Again, I really do think while we finished seven and six this past year, got a bowl victory, and that was great. I think we're going to see a better version of South Alabama football in 24 than we saw in 23. Well, JT, really appreciate your time. No one uh, bleeds South Alabama colors quite like you. Thanks for coming on and sharing some uh, some insight about this program, and, and best of luck throughout the remainder of the offseason. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. Jay's up and go Jags. Okay, that was a great conversation with JT, and he is one of the people that is most plugged in with this program. He's a grad. He's been around this South Alabama program for a long time, and that's why When he talks about the leadership vacuum, I found that particularly interesting. We spent the offseason last year talking about all the returners for South Alabama, but a lot of those players had never had to be in leadership roles, and clearly that was a little lacking, and I think that led to some of the struggles for South Alabama this year. 
Yeah, no, that was definitely my biggest takeaway. And I think something that I'll try to look forward to. And I think we should both look for as we go into the offseason. Now, it's kind of one of those assets and facets of a team that you don't really hear a lot about very frequently, but can be very important, as we saw for the South Alabama team, who seem to have all of the talent, all of the older players in the world, but maybe not that leadership. As a player who's had to step into those leadership roles, it's definitely something that's easier said than done. It's something you have to establish in the offseason. And I think it's going to be very curious to see if that team can grow in that area, given how many of those guys who could have been those leaders are now leaving and their leader of the helm of the entire ship, Kane Walmack, also departing. It's definitely going to be a fascinating storyline, I think, for this program in the offseason. Yeah, Caden, definitely something to keep an eye on. And I know as you and I think towards next year, we're always looking for ways to dissect these teams to maybe get a read on their future success. I think leadership definitely plays a big role. And as we turn our attention now to talk about the Marshall Thundering Herd, this is a team that coming into this year, they did have some good leadership, particularly on the defensive side of the ball, Caden. They were a trendy East Division pick in the preseason. I know I was very high on them, as were you. They start the year 4-0, and but then it largely went downhill from there. They played well at home in Huntington, and they ultimately clawed their way to a seven-straight bowl appearance. But, Caden, this was not a great year for Marshall. What are you going to remember most about Marshall's 2023 season? I'm going to remember the writing kind of being on the wall. We saw them start off the year the first four weeks of the season going undefeated, but a lot of those were narrow victories and they weren't always against the best opponents that we saw across everyone really that the Sun Belt played throughout the year. And I think I kind of gave them the benefit of the doubt personally, just given their style of play, kind of giving kudos to their defense and their run game for just kind of keeping games close. But then we saw as the season went on, those are two things that weren't there consistently for this team that were really its bread and butter in the past. And that's when you see that five-game losing streak. That's when you see shutout losses to South Alabama and a disappointing end to the season in their bowl game. So I think as far as this team goes, it was a team that quickly turned from a contender, I think, to a pretender really fast. And that's definitely what will stand out to me as far as watching this entire season go on for this Marshall team. Yeah, Caden, there's no denying that uh, this Marshall team just wasn't a very good football team on on either side of the ball. I even feel like getting to six wins and into a bowl game might have been a little bit more than uh, they were supposed to do, given what we saw throughout the season. Well, Marshall Steve Cotton is here. Let's review the Thundering Herds 2023 season. Well, we're excited to be joined by the voice of the Marshall Thundering Herd, Steve Cotton on the Ferrari and Smith podcast. Steve, thanks for uh, coming on the show. Oh, good to be with you. Well, let's jump right in here, Steve. This Marshall season, it began with a four-game winning streak, but then the team wasn't able to carry that success into the back half of the season. The team appeared, though, in its seventh straight bowl game in December, but ultimately lost that game to UTSA. What are you going to remember most about this thundering herd season in 2023? Well, the the roller coaster that you mentioned, it was a uh, really nice start to the year. You get the first four wins. You beat Virginia Tech, a sold-out stadium. Everybody's really excited. And then it wasn't a an especially huge number of injuries, but they all came at the same spot, up the middle on defense. Both safeties go out. Your two inside linebackers go down. And all of a sudden, you've got youngsters out there instead of, uh, you know, the other guys line up before the snap. Instead of somebody pointing, you have that, I have this. They're kind of looking at each other saying, what are you doing? What am I supposed to do? And uh, they gave up a lot of chunk plays. And it uh, caused then the losing streak. Then I will remember guys bouncing back. And those young guys who, you know, in week five and six thrown out there didn't really know what they were doing. 
By week eight and nine, they had a much better feel of things. It's not that they didn't have athletes out there. And so they uh, squared things away fairly well at the end of the year, got to the bowl game, ended up falling to uh, Texas San Antonio. But uh, the the injuries, again, not all that many, not an unusual number, but just that they came all at the same spot, it felt like, and that caused a big problem. Yeah, great insight there, Steve. Really appreciate it and appreciate you joining us on the program. As you mentioned, this is a team that started off the year 4-0 and and then goes on to lose six out of the last final eight games, including that five-game losing stretch that started with that NC State loss and ended with that win over Georgia Southern at home. What would you say were the biggest differences for this team from your vantage point, which you saw in the beginning early month of the season, the success they had early on versus the final two months of the year where we saw that collapse outside of the injuries maybe that you mentioned? Well, uh, they... Uh, well, and one other injury I didn't mention that did play a big role in uh, the offensive slowing down, uh, Rasheen Ali, one of the best running backs in the Sun Belt, off to a really big start, had uh, 170-some yards against Virginia Tech, and a guy who had run for uh, 1,400 yards and scored, led the nation with 25 touchdowns the year before, didn't miss many games, total games, but he was not right for six, seven weeks there in the middle of the year. Got back uh, healthy again at the end. So that's part of it. Uh, you had the quarterback in Cam Fancher, who uh, was, again, one of the guys who didn't really miss many games, missed a couple, but was banged up. His running ability was huge for Marshall during the times the herd had success. He wasn't running much, then uh, missed a couple of games with injury. You had a young, inexperienced quarterback, Cole Pennington, out there. So all of those things came into play. Then you play uh, that last game of the regular season. You need a win. You become bowl eligible. And then for the bowl game, Fancher is in the transfer portal. And uh, so you got, again, and other guys, too. There were several, and that's not unique to Marshall, certainly. That uh, is just a part of the part of life now at the end of a football season. So uh, you go to a bowl game, and uh, I think for most teams – you say uh, other than maybe if you're in that uh, playing for the championship that you're kind of looking at a much different team from your bowl game than you saw during the regular season. Steve, sticking on that offensive side of the football, obviously there were stretches of this year where this offense was just extremely inconsistent. I mean, you you do mention some of the injuries, and obviously that's a huge talking point, but you know there was a lot of pieces that came back offensively for this team what did you make of this team's offensive struggles and just the lack of consistency it seemed like we we saw from week to week? Well, this is uh, sort of the thing I revert to always. If your offensive line play is good, you're going to be good on offense. You can draw up a lot of plays that work if you block everybody. If it doesn't happen that way, it's hard for the best offensive coordinator on the planet to uh, draw plays that work if you can't block. And and Marshall struggled with that, struggled to protect the quarterback, and especially after Cam Fancher was not mobile, and then when he was out totally, that that caused huge problems. And it just, you can look at everything. The receivers uh, need to get more separation. They need more explosion on the outside. Uh, if you add a couple of those pieces through recruiting, all of a sudden it's probably a different-looking team next year. They sh- certainly hope it is. Yeah, we've talked about Cam Fancher a few times, and let's get more into him. I think he was one of the more interesting quarterbacks in the conference. I felt like going into the year, we really liked what we saw from him the prior year, his ability to be maybe one of the top quarterbacks in the league, given his arm and his leg talent. But at times this season, he seemed to struggle. You mentioned some of his injuries. He missed a few games as well, and clearly the fan base 
was also well documented as far as their thoughts on him. He's departed now. He's in the transfer portal. He's moved on. Could you maybe summarize Cam's time in Huntington and how you'll remember it? Well, he was kind of uh, thrown in and uh, two years ago. But you had uh, new quarterback, quarterback battle, and uh, he lost out the battle to uh, transfer Henry Columbia, who came in, started the first several games of the year, got a win for Marshall at Notre Dame. He was the quarterback. But Fancher played every game. And Columbia got hurt. Fancher went in and ran off a bunch of wins in a row. I had only one loss through the rest of his season as a starting quarterback. So I uh, took over. Everybody's happy with that. Now, like uh, we all know, quarterbacks get too much blame, get too much credit. And I don't think he uh, he deserved the blame as much as it probably came down to him from, from a certain part of the fan base. That, you know, that's a quarterback. You expect that. Yeah, definitely, you know, was tough to see at times. I mean, you're right. I, I don't think he deserved all the blame that that he got at times because the one thing Cam Fancher did a good job of uh, was win football games uh, when he was the starting quarterback. But switching sides of the ball defensively, this team lost all but four starters ahead of this season, but it brought back guys like Porter, like Abraham, like Neal. It also, you know, reloaded at a number of key positions. Jason Seymour takes over for Lance Guidry at times. Thinking about that JMU game, this defense was terrific, but then that wasn't the norm, unfortunately. What were your biggest takeaways defensively from this squad this year? Well, again, uh, like we talked about earlier, it was the uh, inexperience that showed up at times. They kept getting better, though, so I, I did not feel bad about the uh, the defense. Uh, you know, you want them to make the plays even when they're young and inexperienced, but you have to understand that's not necessarily going to happen. Too many big plays allowed, but again, they got that by and large cleaned up as the season went along. And you mentioned the, the three names. That's a great player at every level. So you had leadership on the defensive line in Owen Porter. When he was double or triple teamed, then you had uh, a younger guy uh, like Elijah Alston ended up being one of the top sack guys, quarterback pressure guys in the Sun Belt. At linebacker, Eli Neal led the way. Everybody just looks at him until he got hurt. That's where the trouble was. People are accustomed to looking at him, and he points here, he nods here, and you know exactly what to do, and that wasn't there for a few weeks. And then Mike Abraham, one of the top uh, five all-time in interceptions in Marshall history up there at the top, his passes defended. The secondary uh, could always look at him. He was always there. The trouble like we mentioned earlier, was uh, in the middle of the field with the safeties. And that's where all those big plays came from. Now, there's definitely no secret that there was some star power on this Marshall defense the last couple of years. And I feel like one of our personal favorite players in the entire conference really was Owen Porter. He's a guy we've had on this show multiple times and been able to speak to. We know he's a hometown kid. He wanted to play for Marshall. He had to change position in his career, but ends up having still a fantastic career. What has he meant to this team, both historically on the field, off the field? Just could you maybe detail what he's been able to do and the impact he's been able to have during his tenure in Huntington? Well, there's the guy who everybody, not just defensive line, not just defense, everybody in that locker room looks up to and respects Owen Porter. He doesn't come in as the most talented guy. He wasn't a highly recruited guy, but from day one, he worked harder than anybody else in the Marshall program, and he was serious about football, about being as good as he could be, about trying to make everybody around him as good as they could be. And the the it was always uh, fun to talk to, uh, especially offensive linemen. In fall camp, Owen Porter, it's 130 degrees down there in the turf. And in three weeks into camp, rep number 1,000, 
everybody else is dead tired, and he's playing every single play like it's fourth and goal at the Super Bowl. And that's just the kind of guy he is. He's the first one at the weight room. He's the last one to leave every day. So, uh, and again, you add in the fact that he's a hometown favorite. It was obvious to everyone who watched how hard he plays and how he left every single thing he had on the field and made the most of his ability. Loves Marshall, loves the Huntington and Tri-State area. So he will forever be a Marshall fan favorite and a hero here. Well, and Steven, to your point, and with all that, he still found time to go hunting. I know when he came on the Ferrarian Smith podcast, he was right out of the blind and onto the Ferrarian Smith podcast and then went right back out there afterwards. But, you know, after this season, it was announced that uh, Seth Dagey would be coming in to run this offense. This team has landed some nice pieces in the transfer portal, including former Wake Forest starter Mitch Griffiths. Are you expecting to see wholesale changes offensively, specifically with the system in 2024? Well, you bring in uh, someone from that tree of uh, Air Raid and Mike Leach and Hal Mummy, and we can go on and talk about uh, the guys who've run that offense, which is exciting. Now, you've got to get the right trigger, man, and uh, there'll be a, a good battle. There are several able guys who've played college football before because you return Cole Pennington. You have uh, Griffiths from Wake Forest. you got a couple of other guys who will be in the mix as well. So if someone is the right guy, you know how quickly that kind of uh, offense can change things and, uh, to, and become exciting. If you have the uh, guy making the right reads and able to make the accurate throws, all of a sudden it can be a tremendous transformation. And that will be interesting to see in spring ball and into next season. Yeah, Steve, there's no question that'll be interesting to see kind of watching this Marshall defense try to maintain and get back to that standard and watch this offense maybe transform a little bit in their philosophy. So definitely something we'll be tuned in on as we cover the Sun Belt throughout this offseason. But we'll end with this. We've seen a lot of roster turnover and some key pieces that have moved on that we've mentioned on this conversation. The East will be a gauntlet yet again in the Sun Belt, but the crossover draw for this team as far as their West opponents will be favorable. Steve, can you pull out your crystal ball for us and tell us what maybe to expect or what you expect from this Marshall Thundering Herd team in 2024? Well, uh, if that offense changes smoothly, if there is the right guy to fit that offensive quarterback. There are several guys coming in, transfer portal guys at wide receiver. We should see more explosive ability there. Now, the offensive line is going to be the key again in all of that. Uh, you, you've got to protect. Now, maybe uh, some styles of offense, you don't have to sit there and protect a drop back passer to go back uh, five steps and stand there and let deep pass routes open up. But uh, again, you, you've got to have some threat to run the ball. You know, the, the air raid spreads it out. And then all of a sudden the, the, you set up the run with the pass. Marshall's been kind of the opposite of that. And we'll see how that uh, flows together with coach Deggie and how coach Huff, who's been a traditionally a running backs coach and uh, very interested in the running game and wants to establish the running game first. It's going to be interesting to see how that comes together. I think the defense, which has been good, should continue to be good. You lose some key guys. It's hard to replace an Owen Porter. It's hard to replace a Mike Abraham. But the guys are there. Uh, you you rotate enough on defense that you bring back people who have some experience, and uh, you think that before long you end up with a pretty overall good experience in, in that group. So uh, we'll see. That. Again, I will be most interested in, the fans will be most interested in to see what that offense evolves into and how quickly it happens. 
Well, Steve, this is a uh, football show, but before we let you go, I got to ask real quick, what's it going to take to get this Marshall men's basketball team back on track? Well, the unusual thing right now, in Dan D'Antoni's now moving on 10 years as the Herds head coach, the offense has almost always been very good. And, uh, you know, and, and partly because of the pace of play, which is right up at the top in the country, typically. The defensive numbers don't always look impressive, but defensive efficiency has always been fine, especially when Marshall's had its better seasons. For whatever reason, right now, Marshall's offense is struggling. The Herd's uh, 11, or I'm sorry, 13 out of 14 in field goal percentage is 13 out of 14 in three-point field goal percentage. And that just has not been the way Marshall's played. So that's what's been different. And at times it looks uh, smooth, like you've gotten it figured out. But then, you know, the other guys see what you're doing. They adjust. And there's been more of a chess match this year. Marshall having to adjust because of what other teams are doing. And that's not like the herd. Coach D'Antoni wants to kind of set the uh, set the way it's going to be played and make other teams adjust to Marshall. But that uh, has been probably the biggest struggle this year. The biggest mystery as to why the herd offense isn't quite as smooth as it has been. Well, Steve, we always appreciate the time. I hope uh, you get to enjoy the rest of uh, this football offseason, basketball. I know baseball. Enjoy that uh, new press box in a couple of weeks. Appreciate you coming on the Prairie and Smith podcast. Sure, guys. Have a good one. Okay, always fun welcoming a new radio voice onto the show. And my biggest takeaway from that interview with Steve was talking about some of those offensive struggles this year, but also looking ahead to the future, maybe some changes coming offensively, schematically, for Marshall, I know that has me excited as I think about Marshall looking at 2024. Yeah, it's definitely exciting. I think when you look at one of the biggest problems of this team this year was obviously their offensive attack not working. It was just a, a, when you when you run an offensive scheme that's very predicated on the run game and controlling the clock, when that's not there for you, your pass game all of a sudden gets very stagnant. And I think this offense just became slowly but surely one of the most predictable units to defend really when you look throughout the season. They didn't really have the personnel to, to do what they wanted to do in the past game. And I think as a result, you saw them just not being able to get the most out of their quarterbacks or skill players, no matter who was under center or who was lined up out wide for them. So I think it's going to be very interesting to watch this team kind of try to evolve into more of a pass-heavy air raid type attack when you just think about them historically, thinking about Rasheen Ali, Kalen LeBourne, even Brendan Knox back from when I played. This team always, year in and year out, has great offensive lines highlighted by a running back that can rush for a 1,000 yards with ease on the season. So I'm going to be very curious and excited to see how this transition looks for this team. We saw a Georgia Southern program go from running a triple option to an air raid and make that transition look seamless. You see Texas State come into the league with a new head coach and make that transition look seamless as well. So going to be very curious to see how they handle that in Huntington and how they can hopefully shift their offensive culture positively in this offseason. Yeah, Caden, I think that'll be fascinating. And as we alluded to in this interview, Coach Hall and staff, they've already been doing, or Coach Huff rather, and staff have already been doing a great job in terms of recruiting and the transfer portal, bringing in young kids. So certainly the future looking bright and and perhaps a more exciting brand of football is in store in 2024. Well, that will do it for the latest episode in our Sunbelt in review series. Again, we'd like to say a special thank you to South Alabama's JT Crabtree, as well as Marshall's voice, Steve Cotton, for joining us for today's conversation. We're in the home stretch and Caden and I can't wait to finish reviewing the 2023 seasons for the remaining Sunbelt schools. And with that in mind, don't forget, we're going to be back on Monday. We'll be releasing the penultimate episode in our in-review series, focusing on Georgia State and, and Southern Miss. 
Voices of the Panthers, Dave Cohn, as well as Golden Eagles, John Cox, will join us. You're going to want to give it a listen. That'll do it for us here at the Ferry and Smith Podcast. Before you go, here's one thing you can do. Share today's episode with one of your Sunbelt-loving friends. Help us continue to grow this show into the premier destination for Sunbelt football fans. So for Caden Smith, Richmond Weaver, and Brett Jemis, I'm Noah Frary. We really appreciate you spending more time with us today. Well, that's goodbye for now. We'll talk to you again on Monday. Monday.